Today's episode is brought to you by The Loneliness Files, a groundbreaking memoir and essays by Athena Dixon. Living alone as a middle-aged woman without children or pets and working 40 hours a week from home, more than 350 miles from her family and friends, Dixon begins watching mystery videos on YouTube, listening to true crime podcasts, and playing video game walkthroughs just to hear another human voice. Called Haunting, Affecting, and Searingly Smart by Janine Ouellette, and a radical re-envisioning of what loneliness can make possible by Destiny O'Birdsong. The Loneliness Files asks us to consider what it means to be a body behind a screen, lost in the hustle of an online world in our age of digital hyperconnection. The Loneliness Files is available now from Tin House. Today's conversation with translator Kate Briggs about her novel, The Long Form, is a long time coming. Not only because Kate and I have been corresponding and anticipating it together, but also because Kate's work has been a presence on the show, from the conversation with Sawako Nakayasu to the conversation with Lydia Davis. And Kate's first book, This Little Art, is already a classic within books about translation, a much beloved and cherished book whose animating questions and concerns find themselves now within her first novel, a novel that meditates itself on the novel through the centering of a baby within it and the ways centering a baby disrupts so many of the things we consider givens or norms within this form of storytelling. Her latest book is out with two of my favorite presses, Fitzcarraldo in the UK and Dorothy in the US. You may know Fitzcarraldo because they seem to have an uncanny knack for publishing Nobel Prize winners before they become winners, including this year's winner. And Dorothy, who publishes only two books a year, both by women, a press run by two great writers in their own right, Danielle Dutton and Martin Riker, they have, similar to Fitzcarraldo, curated an archive of books that is truly impeccable. In the spring of 2022, you may remember, I actually had both of Dorothy's authors from that year on the show back-to-back, Christina Rivera Garza and Karen Balin. And Dorothy at the time, to celebrate this, sent me a largesse of books to offer to new supporters of the show. And now, 18 months later, with Kate's appearance, they've been so kind as to do something similar again. So, like last time, I've made their gift into various bundles for new supporters of the show. One includes Kate's new book, along with Dorothy's other release this year, the New Zealand writer Pip Adams and her book The New Animals, two of the biggest, longest books that Dorothy has ever published. But all of the bundles contain incredible writers, whether Amina Kane or Karen Balin or Rosemary Waldrop's only novel, or Renee Gladman, or Leonora Carrington. And these Dorothy books 
are only one of innumerable things to choose from by joining the Between the Covers community. All supporters get the resources with each episode, which this time are truly oceanic in breadth and depth, but they're always robust. And everyone who supports the show can participate in shaping who comes onto the show in the future. I should also mention that one of the things to choose from, copies of the journal Mizna, a journal that is now helmed by Palestinian poet George Abraham, who you may remember making guest appearances on the episodes with Adania Shibli and Isabella Hamad. Well, Mizna has just won the Whiting Award for excellence in literary magazines, with the judges calling it a gem of a journal, tightly edited, gorgeously curated, and visually striking. Care and craft float off its pages of beautifully laid out poetry and lovingly printed images that further important intergenerational dialogue within the Southwest Asian and North African diaspora and showcase thrilling new literature. I mention this because there are copies of several of their issues available, including the Etel Adnan tribute issue and the Black Takeover issue, guest edited by poet Safia El-Hilo. You can check all of this out and more. All the Dorothy books, the copies of Mizna, collectibles from past guests, the bonus audio archive, and more at patreon.com slash between the covers. And now for today's conversation with Kate Briggs. Good morning and welcome to Between the Covers. I'm David Naiman, your host. Today's guest is writer and translator Kate Briggs. Briggs is the translator of two volumes of Roland Barthes' lecture notes at the Collège de France, the preparation for the novel, and how to live together, novelistic simulations of some everyday spaces, and co-translator of Michel Foucault's Introduction to Kant's Anthropology. Her published experiments in literary criticism include the Nabokov paper, an experiment in novel reading, Story the Story in It, an inquiry into reading and its relationship to writing, using Henry James's short story, The Story in It, Entertaining Ideas, which began as an effort to perform a quote-unquote good reading of Elizabeth Jane Howard's The Long View, and to think about what a good short reading of a long novel might mean, and which morphs into a meditation on living forwards and writing backwards, an exercise in pathetic criticism, a one-page reconstruction of the account of Monte Cristo according to the precepts of pathetic criticism, inspired by Roland Barthes' dream of a new form of literary criticism, one that dares to ruin the work in order to make it live. 
Briggs is on the editorial board of BART Studies, an open access journal for research in English on the work of Roland Bart, and she founded and co-runs the writing, reading, learning, and publishing project, Short Pieces That Move. She has taught experimental translation at the American University of Paris and taught and mentored everywhere from the MFA in Fine Art at the Pete Swart Institute, University of Arkansas, Princeton, and the Netherlands Film Academy, among other places. What Kate Briggs is most known for, however, is her truly brilliant first book, This Little Art, which came out in 2017 from Fitzcarraldo Editions. Impossible to categorize, it has been called an essay with the reach and momentum of a novel and a genre-bending song for the practice of literary translation. Lydia Davis said of this little art, Kate Briggs's This Little Art shares some of the wonderful qualities with Bart's own work, the wit, thoughtfulness, invitation to converse, and especially the attention to the ordinary and everyday in the context of meticulously examined theoretical and scholarly questions. This is a highly enjoyable read, informative and stimulating for anyone interested in translation, writing, language, and expression. Theophilus Queck for Asymptote adds, though it does not present itself as a memoir, a how-to guide, or a scholarly monograph, this little art derives its magic precisely from being all of these and more, gifting us not only with a genre-bending work of imaginative criticism, but also a fitting metaphor for all that the work of translation is and can be. This Little Art was a White Review Book of the Year, a finalist for the Believer Book Award, and in 2021, Briggs was a recipient of the Wyndham Campbell Prize for her work, where the judges say of This Little Art, This Little Art articulates and refracts the many strangenesses and paradoxes of translation as a practice and an art. Translation, Briggs shows us, is both lonely and collaborative, disciplined and profoundly educational, a private devotion and a public project. It energizes and frustrates, requiring from its practitioners passion, precision, and an openness to transformation. Since then, Briggs wrote the book we are discussing today, her debut novel, The Long Form, which came out in the spring in the UK from Fitzcarraldo, and now arrives in the United States with Dorothy Books. Wendy Erskine says of The Long Form, Kate Briggs treats the quotidian rhythms of Helen and Rose, mother and baby, with unusual attentiveness, perspicacity, and most importantly, largeness of thought. This makes the long form a radical, celebratory, and quite magical consideration of the profound creative possibilities inherent in and intrinsic to everyday experience. It's such a lively and generous book. And Preeti Taneja adds, The Long Form is an absorbing and profound novel in which Kate Briggs breathes extraordinary life 
into the quiet moments of a young woman, one who is also a new mother, a reader, a daughter, a friend. With every carefully weighted sentence, action, and thought, one is immersed in the radical generosity of this writing, its principles of collectivity, and its feminist commitment to making the smallest, most everyday act worthy of consideration within a literary canon. A beautifully written book about the art of reading, of criticism, and of surviving through the strangest yet most normal of times. Welcome to Between the Covers, Kate Briggs. Thank you. Thank you for that incredible introduction and for having me. I've been looking forward to this day for a super long time. Uh, and I want to start outside the book before we venture inside of it and talk about what it means to write at length, the longness of the long form. This is partially influenced by the conversation that precedes ours with Lydia Davis, where we spend the first half of it talking about the effects of brevity in language. What an exercise like, how short can I make something and still have it retain meaning? An exercise that Lydia used when she was translating Proust's long sentences. So while she was translating his sentences, she came up with an exercise for her own writing about brevity. What does that exercise do to the choices we make and to the reading experience? Your book, like your first book, points outside of itself, not only because both of them make visible their debts to others, which I want to discuss later, but also that both titles are the words of others. In this case, uh, the long form is what Roland Barthes calls the novel in his lecture called The Preparation of the Novel, which you translated. And to extend this sense of inheritance, I think of my conversation with Billy Ray Belcourt, where his book, History of My Brief Body, it contains failed attempts to write an autobiographical novel. And the book that Billy Ray and I discussed, A Minor Chorus, a title that reminds me of or, or rhymes in some way with the title This Little Art to me, it features a main character looking for a new form. It's a book in engagement, also with your translation of the preparation of the novel, where Bart, after his mother dies, in the aura of that grief, himself feels the need to venture into a new form to prepare for a future book called Vita Nova or New Life. So before we talk about the long form, your book, talk to us about what you're inheriting or wanting to inherit by borrowing this phrase and also the implications it contains about creating a sense of length. I mean, you've started where it really matters, I think. When I've been called upon to you know, account for this novel recently, since its publication in the UK and its preparation for publication in the US, one way I've come at describing it is as a kind of inquiry into how length matters or what difference length makes, which I think speaks very much to your conversation with, with Lydia Davis, like, you know, how, how duration matters, because you could also sort of articulate that inquiry through the shortest of forms. And, and interestingly, in the preparation of the novel, it's a two-part lecture course, as you know, and the first part is 
devoted to the shortest of forms, um, to the haiku, and this proposition that you might, in order to understand what's at stake in the longer forms, you might need to start here in, you know, with the smallest, smallest quantity of language, 17 syllables composed. It took me a long time to kind of understand why it mattered so much, this sort of biographical fact of bereavement in the last lecture course for Bath. There's this, what he calls a parting of the waters. Like so there's a kind of something is, something is stopped. Some form of life, life for him, quite literally a form of cohabitation with his mother has ended. And there's this, you know, now he's now on the other side. The river's taking a different route. And so why length then? You know, like why, why length at that point? After having experimented so richly and so profoundly with, with the more fragmented forms, I started to formulate that question to myself as a question about how to carry on. You know, when, when does it become necessary to continue to carry on um, to achieve something like continuity? I mean, but describes for him the novel, the long form, has these features of continuousness, coherence, constructedness, flow. And it sort of just came to realise, I guess, sort of processing this information um, through my own life. And um, I don't think I really understood it at the time of translating that's perhaps once, you know, following a kind of rupture, a kind of major interruption, a kind of break, the kind of break that happens in through loss, but also the kind of, I guess I was putting it into the context of new motherhood and the initiation of new life, not the, just the loss of, of, of life, but the kind of the emergence of new life. And that too is a is a form of interruption and breakage. And and rather than that sort of directing you towards the short form or the note or the the fragment that perhaps it might be because life is so become so strange and so bitty <laughs> it's kind of like it's it's you know it's coming apart like the, the sort of transitions between the first part of the morning to the second part of the morning how to kind of carry on from one phase of the day to the other might not seem obvious anymore then it might be exactly exactly under those conditions that length might come into play or kind of length defined as as continuity and and carrying carrying a thought on, carrying a relation on, carrying a composition on. So, yeah, the meaning of duration and when, when it becomes aesthetically necessary, but also sort of socially necessary. So I guess the sort of, you know, it's such a rich question, but it's sort of a final thought in relation to it, or kind of maybe the start of, a, <laughs> of another direction in relation to it, would be, you know, when, when, are the, when do sort of the stakes require that something continue? I was thinking a lot about different kinds of relation, you know, the kind of encounter we have now and we've been corresponding and leading up to it and I hope we'll correspond after it. Um, but it's like a first time encounter and that has a different quality. The stakes are different to the sorts of um, relations that you have with people where you'll keep seeing them. You'll see them tonight. You'll see them tomorrow morning. You'll see them in a week. Um, the responsibilities are different. You know, the stakes are figured differently. And I was interested in those sort of long forms of, of relation, whether that's a reading relation or a kind of living social relation. Yeah. So to extend our sense of, I guess, relations and also family making beyond Billy Ray Belcourt writing a book inspired in part by your translation of Roland Barthes and you yourself asking a question of Lydia Davis in my last conversation with her after both of you having cited each other in each other's books. 
when you were in conversation in The Believer with Kate Zambreno, which was titled wonderfully Letters to Kate, you mentioned to the other Kate something from Alejandro Zambra's book, Not to Read, a piece called The Festival of the Long Novel, describing a project for a literary festival which never happened, but that you wish had happened. And that's something that I discussed when Zambra was on the show, too, since he's very known for his short books. And we were talking about his quite long book, Chilean Poet. And furthermore, Zambra also writes, in tribute to you in the book, a table made again for the first time, which engages with this little art. To Kate Zambreno, you say, I would love more than anything to sit with other readers and practitioners of the longest form and try to work this fascination out. But that's not to say I plan to write a long novel. I'm not sure I'd be capable of it. My novel would have to be something else, which links in my head to failure. And now years later, here we are, and you have written a long novel and or written something else. And also this long novel or this something else is linked perhaps also to failure in a certain way, or if not failure, some sort of indeterminacy or provisionality. So I'd love to stay longer with length um, and maybe have this question that's going to be posed to you by another, um, be another way to answer this question of length again. Um, so here's a question by someone who's also wondering about length too, from Danielle Dutton, your editor, who's also a writer and co-founder of Dorothy, uh, your publisher. Here's a question from Danielle. Hi, Kate. Hi, David. My cat Fern just meowed. I'm not sure if you could hear her, but oh, there she goes. She likes to be a part of things. David, thank you for inviting me to be part of your conversation. I'm really looking forward to listening to the whole thing. Kate, here's what I wanted to ask you. So first I wanted to say, you know, Dorothy is known for doing slender books. I am a fan of slender books. I think you are too, based on our conversations and, and what I know you read and like. And the long form is the longest book Dorothy has ever done by, by half, I think. So um, it's quite a bit bigger than all of our other books. And I'm really interested in that. I mean, I think what your book has got me thinking about is the idea of what I want to call durationality. Um, so it's not, it's even made me think backwards about the slender books that part of what I like about them is that their length feels really intentional as opposed to, you know, sometimes I read books that feel like their length has been dictated by market norms. Um, and I, I like to feel like the experience the sort of temporal experience of something I'm reading is super intentional. And that feels really true about the long form. And I just wonder if you could talk about that and talk about what got you thinking about durationality um, when you started writing this project, because that feels like such an important piece of it. Thanks. Bye. Oh, it's so moving to hear Danielle's voice unexpectedly. Thank you both. Durationality is a, is a very rich and useful term, I think. Also, intention and intentionality. Maybe something to, to, something to say about length. The length, length I'm talking about, I guess it is about the kind of duration, a really sort of quite a practical sense of like the duration of a reading experience. Because 
of course, thinking of the other books that Dorothy published, there is a kind of expansion that happens in the mind and in my own relationship. Thinking of Renee Gladden's work, for example, where I kind of carry the book with me, or I carry that that kind of atmosphere or you know a cityscape with me on for a lot longer than than after having finished the last page. So there's a kind of a continu- continuation which I think happens. And also, obviously, Lydia Davis would be another example of that, of the kind of expansion from the, the smallest, again, the smallest quantity of words, the one sentence that can kind of expand on the page. So I am talking about reading time. And why is that, why is that important? And I think it has to do with an intention to make a book, write a book that would be hard to read in one sitting. Think of a kind of like very sort of crude definition of a you know, sort of opposition between a short story, say, and then a novella, um, and then a novel would be something that's longer. Forster said 50,000 words was the threshold or, you know, but longer. And so therefore it's going to be cut, it's going to be interrupted, it's going to be set down and returned to. And that was really important to me because the novel is enacting this um, relation between a, a mother and her newborn, and they're each continuously refreshing their relation to each other. I mean, Helen, as the adult, is is quite literally setting the baby down, moving a small different distance away and returning to her. But the baby too, Rose, is, is also sort of getting distracted and engaging with other things and then renewing her relationship or her, her attention, the direction of her attention towards her mother. As part of its form, I wanted to stay with the two of them and also stay with them staying with each other. Um, but that didn't mean not ever moving away. It meant interruption. It meant leaving. So I'm really interested in the novel as, a, as the art, the kind of art form that seems to accommodate and withstand interruption. You know, the novel I'm reading, you know, novels I'm reading or you're reading now, I'm sure, David, like, you know, by our beds or stacked around us or whatever. You know, we'll go back to them later. But in, in between, we've had this conversation, we've lived our lives. You know, and so what is this art form that seems to understand that it will be cut and mm. um, withdrawn from in, in order to be returned to? So it was really important that the long form did that. It had, was, it was a, a long enough to sort of invite that and accommodate the reader's life and distraction. But the other thing, actually, which was just a, anecdotally, uh, you know, at the end of, of reading, my partner read it, read the final, final version um, before kind of it went to, to print and uh, sort of calculated um, the time he spent with it, like taking, you know, the printed pages to a cafe and, you know, and, and we sort of adding them up. So he was reading it over about two weeks or so and adding them up, it came, um, you know, with all of these breaks and going to work and all of that stuff, um, it came to about like 11 to 12 hours, which is more or less the duration of the day that, um, you know, that Helen and Rose kind of live out with all of these, you know, there are these sorts of sort of flashbacks to an earlier time, an earlier living situation. There are, there's a small flash forward, there are these expansions, but like the day is is from early morning until about, you know, until um, evening and, and darkness falls. And and I really love that, this, that, that actually the reading time, if you were to calculate it, sort of scaled, the novel is scaled to, um, to what's, to the sort of the physical progress through the pages. Um, so there was certainly an intention there, and I felt like length needed to matter here. It's not trivial, and it's not tri- it needed to be long, and it needed even to sort of 
caught exhaustion on the part of the reader, like a willingness to say, are we really going to kind of leave them and open out and return to the big again? You know, it, it needed to have that sort of sense of, of exhaustion in order to sort of renew attention and energy towards the end of the day. This is a perfect segue to my next question and series of thoughts, sort of as a first step toward talking about what's inside the long form. I was going to quote something else you said to the other Kate, and I'm going to quote it anyways, but it, it you've already sort of echoed it when you said, what continues for me is this desire for the novel, what Bart calls the long form, the longest form. There's something about the length, and so therefore also about the duration of engagement and the way this reading time has to be interrupted with and kind of extended by life, because a long form can't be read all at once, which fascinates me. It has always fascinated me, I think. But what's so great about this to me four years later is that you've actually inverted this entirely in a really incredible way, I think. Instead of reading life being interrupted by life, the phenomenon you just described, life in your book is interrupted by a book. So the first and primary example of the longest form in your book is not the reading of a book, but it's our main character, Helen's relationship with her baby. The baby is not interrupting the book or the reading of it. The Helen-baby interaction is the default position of the book, and anything else that occurs outside of this interaction is the interruption. And amazingly, the first interruption is itself the arrival of a book, which we'll get to later on. But for now, I thought it would be interesting for people to hear, interesting and useful for people to hear the opening. It's hard to say that any given example of the book is characteristic of the book as a whole, but the opening is definitely characteristic of one mode that the book exists in. So if, if you're open to it, I would love for people to hear the chapter guessing and movement in the living room and then the following one sleep. Yes. Um, and thank you also for taking me back to the conversation with Kate. I haven't read that for a long time. You know, that was, as you say, like four years ago. I find it so interesting, the sort of persistence of questions, <laughs> you know, these things that, and, and fascinations and what it takes to sort of be somehow rid of them. And perhaps that's not what, what's happening. I'm thinking about Alejandro as well and, and the long the long novel. It's that the festival of, for, of long novels that never took place. Like perhaps there were just these, just these questions that just to sort of like just stay they just pulse, they just pulse away, you know, they pulse away and you sort of write books somehow in relation to some kind of part of their pulsation, but without actually uh, shutting them down, thankfully, because they are inexhaustible. Duration and how it matters. This is from uh, the opening section called First Thing, and then the first chapter, which is Guessing and Movement in the Living Room. The beginning of each new project was always a continuation. For the time being, it was the basic, but not obvious, project of sleep. A co-project, involving Helen and her baby, starting out from where they were first thing in the morning, carrying forward the experience of their long and wakeful, interactive night. Helen, tall in proportion to the room, 
her hair hanging heavily, heating her neck, the baby wide open, shifting and lively in her arms. Spread out over the floor was a playmat, a thick square divided into four distinct sections. Its colours were a bit faded, from the sun, from the heavy rounds it must have done in someone else's washing machine. Its spaces looked touched, well-mouthed, its closer textures more or less exhaustively pre-explored. Even so, like the light show enclosed in a moulded plastic star, the all-in-ones they'd received handed down along with the map in a large format bag for life, to Helen and the baby, it was all new, weirdly, relentlessly, startlingly new. Underfoot, the map made the thin carpet soft. Already, it changed the whole inhabitation of the room. Sleep. One of the mat's zones looked agricultural. Satin crops of different shades of green furrowed with dark brown, artificial fur. Helen wanted to rest her head in that patched field. She was tired. We could sleep there, she thought. She looked down. The baby's head was a weighted sphere, warm and solid in the crook of her arm, the rest of her fidgety and light. The baby lifted her chin, gazed back up. Helen loosened the idea out from her own head and offered it, smiling and nodding with it, floating it like a proposition to the baby. She let the baby's gaze range intently around the edges of her face. Then, on second thoughts, tugged her idea back in. Actually, I decide. She looked up, away, and restated this firmly to herself. I decide. And I say we lie there and go to sleep. The task of kneeling without support, squatting then kneeling. It was a bit unsteady, ungainly, doing this with a baby in her arms. Carefully, she set the baby down in the field portion of the mat. The baby arched her back, kicked her heels, sensitive to the change of surface, this sudden flatness underneath her, the way it seemed to give in. Helen lay herself down too, stretching out her frame to its full extent, then turning towards her, drawing in close. The smells of the field mixed with the deep and different body smells of the baby. The field smelled like lemons, like something else, a chemical note. It was yielding, comfortable, a duvet almost that ridged and bumped here and there with plastic parts and scratchy parts on the floor. She nudged her nose against the baby's shoulder. She pulled her knees all the way up until they touched the small heels of the baby's feet, making her body into a protective container wall. The baby twisted her hands, twitched her legs. She opened and closed her mouth. Something above her at an angle caught. It captivated her attention. Helen lay her head on her elbow, exhaled. Her breath blew a warm breeze across the baby's face. She changed her mind, shifted, rested her cheek in the cupped palm of her left hand. She whispered sleep well to the baby and closed her eyes. Slowly, one by one, she gave her limbs permission to relax. Then, in the next moment, she was back up to standing again, her head bopping the rim of the ceiling lamp, setting it swinging, releasing a great puff of dust into the air, the baby high in her arms, because for her part, the baby feeling too loose, too unbounded, and far too infinite on the mat, preferred to be held, in one holding position and then another, always with a slight bounce to the hold. Listening to Kate Briggs read from her latest book, The Long Form. So when talking about the notion of the long form with Renee Gladman in the Yale Review, she describes her idea of it 
as an expanse full of beats or pulses or breaths. And I think that describes this aspect of the book really well. I've never read a book like this ever before. Um, We stay in this intimate dance between Helen and Rose, a call and response for maybe the first 20 or 30 pages before other elements, other ways of being interject themselves. And this centering of the baby, not as a topic or subject, but as an actor and a character who acts upon the story, who is the story, so much so that the pulse or rhythm or breath of the book is entirely different because of it. I think it calls into question many things about the history of novels as forms and the presumptions that are baked into them. And I want to spend some time with the implications of this novel being baby-centric before we discuss the other crucial elements of the book. My first thought is in regards to something you said to Gladman, where you say, I don't think there is one protected space for stories and a separate space for thinking or questions. They seem to me to be always connected, always producing each other. I'd like to start here with the notion of there not being a protected space of stories and thinking that's separate from life. You placing the baby at the center of the story, I think by definition collapses any notion of that. And it makes me think of my conversation with Julie Phillips, the biographer for Ursula K. Le Guin for the Crafting with Ursula series. It was an episode called On the Writing Mother, and it was a topic of great interest philosophically for Le Guin, but also one for Phillips, who wrote a book called The Baby on the Fire Escape, which looks at the lives of many different writing mothers. The Le Guin essay that was central to our discussion when Julie and I talked was The Fisherwoman's Daughter, and perhaps in a similar spirit to the ways your titles are borrowed or passed down. Her working title for that essay was Crazy Quilt because it was given many times over the course of a decade while she was figuring out how to no longer write from a male point of view, what it meant to write for her as a woman. And every time she gave the talk, she would revise and rework the essay based on the feedback from one audience to the next. So Le Guin saw this essay as a collaborative work. If I were to begin quoting much from it, it would, I think, take over our conversation as there's too much to quote from. So I'll, I'll point people to the conversation with Julie Phillips to really get an in-depth examination of this essay. But I'll quote one tiny fragment as part of a preface to a question for you, where Le Guin says, Back in the 1970s, one prominent feminist scholar wrote that Jane Austen was able to write because she had created around her a quote-unquote child-free space. Germ-free, I knew. Odor-free, I knew. But child-free? And Austin, who wrote in the parlor and was a central figure to a lot of nieces and nephews. But I tried to accept this because although my experience didn't fit it, I was, like many women, used to feeling that my experience was faulty, not right, that it was wrong. So I was probably wrong to keep on writing in what was then a fully child-filled space. She then goes on to brilliantly, I think, explore what she coins as the artist housewife in contrast to the hero artist. 
And part of the distinction is around the notion of space. Virginia Woolf is perhaps the most important writer for her, one of the writers she admires the most. But I think here she's suggesting that writing happens despite not having a room of one's own. Um, And I think of Kate Zambreno again saying that she doesn't even have a writing desk, that several of her most recent books are written on the couch with an infant's body on top of her writing in a notebook, or how you on the Fitzcarraldo podcast talk about how until recently you didn't have a writing room but wrote in the main room. But even now with your own room, it doesn't have a door but a curtain And somehow this feels very important to me, to the long form, the curtain instead of a door. And I wonder if this notion of the artist housewife, which Le Guin describes as the artist with the least access to social or aesthetic solidarity or approbation, sparks anything for you around your own project. Again, what an amazing sort of pathway that you've tracked through these different materials and, and these questions. Um, perhaps I'll start walking on the path by going back to the centering of a baby and the way in which that was indeed, a, you know, as you've, you've, you've stated, you've sort of re-described and, and given it back to me, so important to this project. The passage I read, the sort of opening of the book that I read, the baby is a, as yet unnamed and there's a small section on on sort of questioning how to talk about the baby, which is partly sort of filtered through Helen's consciousness, but also I hope you get the sense it's the kind of narrating consciousness that's wondering this. Is it a baby, the baby, my baby? And the baby is at that time sort of somewhat anonymous, unspecified, and then it takes quite a while in the novel in terms of some pages for the baby to be named. And I really wanted to sort of draw that out almost as a kind of, as a as a as a plot device, or as a sort of uh, as a I guess a mode of a form of telling the story of the emergence of a of a sp- specific actor, as you as you call her, um, and that she no, and she indeed she she is named and she is, she is singular and she is a, a vital presence and participant in in everything that's happening. And to think of the baby, you know, and this particular baby as interesting like on on many levels interesting um interesting as a as a character what is it to sort of write the character of a baby when babies as characters haven't typically appeared that much in in novels for the reason that they they don't seem to sort of possess the capacity for action like sort of walking about and talking that you might associate with a, a protagonist normally they don't possess the kind of adult agency so that sort of challenge of how to write a baby character but also like how she's so sort of philosophically interesting, how she's so challenging, um, you know, what it is to think out what time might feel like, what space might feel like, what, um, what a setting might feel like if you are a newcomer, you know, you're in, you're in this position of, of, of total newness and, and, and novelty. So that was really important to me. And again, to think, so, so it's to make a space, thinking of Ursula Le Guin's um, child-filled space, in relation to something else that you said earlier, this sense that this is already going on, this is already underway, this dynamic, it's been, it's been happening, it's been happening for, for six weeks now, but you, you know, Rose is six weeks, uh, almost six weeks old, but also it's been happening in the sense there's been the time of pregnancy and gestation. 
we arrive at this pair with something already very much in progress. Not to say that it's established because it's being learned and relearned. And so the space, this flat that they live in, this kind of rented flat, is indeed like, you know, filled with the, the presence of an adult and, and a child. And I think something also important about that, about that kind of occupation of the space of a home, but also the space of the spaces of thinking, kind of letting the child in, the baby in, not only babies necessarily, but the sort of the kind of erratic and the kind of everything that uh, there's these sort of qualities that not only babies have, but they seem to have in a, in a particularly intense form, which is, you know, dependency and, and neediness and sort of extreme vulnerability and also unpredictability. Babies have these qualities, but not only babies, um, you know, other life forms clearly have them too. This idea that, you know, where babies are or where a kind of life force that has those qualities is not where creativity is, is not where art making is, is not where uh, intellectual inquiry is, is not where philosophy is. So the child-filled space, which is also the sort of territory for thinking or, you know, in the long form, it's that it's the kind of play map that's introduced um, early on. It's like, it's also this kind of space for thinking and these two, these, these actions, they, they can co- coexist. That's something I get so, you know, I find so, so deeply sort of inspiring and, enab- and enabling from Le Guin is that she's not interested in this, it's sort of setting up a question in the ways that it does still typically get set up as a kind of either or, like if babies, then then no books or something, which is also this weird sort of false equivalence between books and babies. I mean, this, the long form is very aware of that. I mean, you know, I couldn't have written the book without being kind of aware of that. You know, how far is it possible to have both? Uninterested in that manner of phrasing the question and much more interested in a way that I hope is, is, or, you know, I feel is resonant with what Le Guin is doing in that essay of, of, of thinking about the forms of creativity and, and politics and philosophical sort of conundruming that are actually already going on here in this space that might look intensely domestic, might not be immediately recognisable as a space of creative action. But here we have reckoning with difference, with otherness, minute by minute here we have improvisation minute by minute you know here we have kind of resistance you know there is a refrain that runs through the novel of Helen saying you heard it in that passage of like I decide you know I'm in charge and I say you know <laughs> I say we're going to go to sleep now because I'm tired and, and it's like the baby's like well no no you know that like no we're not this is going to be a collaboration of how sleep happens and that seems to me to that's a sort of human dynamic, that's a social dynamic, but that's not unrelated without collapsing caring for young children into sort of the kind of work that happens when writing, when writing or making anything. I, you know, the last thing I'd want to do is sort of flatten those things out so that they sound exactly the same. But I do think it's possible to insist on a kind of continuity because that resistance, I feel that happens with, you know, when I'm writing to, you know, setting down language, setting out language you know, wanting to feel in charge and then discovering anew that I'm not exactly in charge. I'm working with forces that precede me and perhaps more powerful than me. Um, <laughs> yeah. Does that make sense? It does. I, I want to I stay one more moment with Le Guin because she's explicitly in your book. Yes. 
her biographer, Julie Phillips, in her book, The Baby on the Fire Escape, uh, Julie says, what is the subjective experience of being a mother and why, despite a steadily growing body of writing on the phenomenology of mothering, does it still seem on a deeper level so unnarratable, undramatic, everywhere in practice, but in theory, nowhere? And I feel like your book, The Long Form, stands out as an incredible counterexample to this general absence that Julie notes. And I feel like another of Le Guin's iconic essays that was part of her puzzling out formally, aesthetically, and philosophically, and otherwise, how to quote-unquote write as a woman, is the carrier bag theory of fiction, which you make an explicit nod to in this book with a chapter called bringing the energy home. And I was wondering if you could just speak for a moment about what that essay means for you and or how that essay and your book are in conversation. Absolutely. I mean, this is probably clear to you. Le Guin has been hugely important to me over the past sort of three or four years. So a relatively recent discovery and, and really thanks to a student, an incredible artist called Madison Bycroft, who I had a studio visit with about maybe four or five years ago now, who was saying to me, have you read The Carrier Bag Theory of Fiction? And I was like, no, no, Le Guin, no, Earth Scene, no. And she was like, okay, come on. <laughs> and so, uh, yeah, she opened that door for me. It's such an essay in terms of its length, but it's, it's doing so much. It's sort of, it feels like this radical project of redescription, of offering a kind of alternative terms for understanding what might be happening when we're making stories and writing stories. I guess one thing I found so generative was thinking about, in ways that I hoped Le Guin would, would, um, would approve of, or, you know, thinking of her, her deep connections to, to Wolf, but also to Dickens, and her kind of interest in the sort of, in, in the history of the novel and the history of, of narration, was this, this idea of a kind of, of a container, her, you know, her shopping bag, her kind of net bag, and how, in Tom Jones, which is, is the book that gets received through the, through the letterbox um, into the, the, the domestic space of the long form and into you know, the place where Helen and Rose are living their lives. You know, Henry Fielding has these sort of essayistic chapters where, or even essayistic um, title, uh, titles, where he, there's a whole sequence of titles, a sort of play, a kind of comic play, what this book will contain, you know, this thick thing like Tom Jones, The History of a Foundling. And it's, you know, he has a chapter, a short chapter containing 10 pages, a longer chapter containing one page. There's this whole, there's all this play on kind of containing, presenting itself in kind of the mid 18th century as already a kind of containing device in which it clearly that, you know, the book is, the codex is. But to find this resonance between um, a kind of play on, on what kind of container the long form of a novel is, and then to have the Gwyn kind of explicitly thinking through that as, as you know, if, if we're talking about holding together, if what matters more is as a kind of holding together of, 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 of difference as well, of disparate parts without collapsing them into each other. You know, she has that image of a kind of mouse skull sitting alongside um, something else, like, you know, a bundle of herbs or something. You know, I really, I love that idea as a kind of image for the novel of, of something like a, a collection yeah, collection which is not a blending, which is not a soup. It's not a. Um, <laughs> it's not a. 
it's not a stew, you know. And so it's like like with Helen and Rose and with Henry Fielding and the other players and the plant and all the other participants in the long form, they don't become each other. They remain quite distinct from each other, but they coexist with each other. And the novel, I guess maybe that comes back to, to duration. It offers a kind of time for them to coexist. They coexist for a, quite a significant amount of time. So it allows you, sort of, makes a kind of study space to think about how they get on and how they, or not get on, how they might be sort of in antagonistic relations to each other and what they might have to say to each other, how may, they might illuminate each other. So those were some of just, yeah, some of the ways that that, that essay was generative for me, as it has been, I think, for so many for so many people, I think so it's amazing, a kind of whole generation, I think, working in, in an art school, it became a kind of really ubiquitous reference, sort of deeply inspiring for, for many, many young practitioners. Huh. Well, one thing the long form and the carrier bag theory both do is they look at the erasure of maintenance labor, of how it's seen as not being worthy of fiction, and call into question what we consider dramatic or worth dramatizing. The carrier bag theory establishes that the gathering of things back into the hearth was much more crucial than the hunting of meat, and yet the stories were being written about the men and their spears. And this essay thinks deeply about how deeply ingrained story structure has become with regards to a bias against the daily work of gathering as not being story-worthy. And when I think of the long form through the traditional lens of what is, or the normative lens of what is dramatic in your book, probably the ringing of the doorbell is probably the biggest drama, or perhaps the book getting washed by accident in the washing machine. But if we're able to step to the side of all the biases that we've inherited and look with fresh eyes, the relationship between Helen and Rose which is constantly shifting, is really overflowing with drama moment to moment. And one of the most thrilling moments for me was the description of a moment of breastfeeding where Helen has a sort of nerve pain radiate from her breast into her arm as her milk drops. And it was so well rendered that I had a pain in my arm while reading it. I I felt a moment of identification with this scene. And what's really interesting is that if we begin to change what we consider story-worthy, the forms and shapes of our stories begin to change dramatically. They have to. Um, As a first step toward talking about babies in relation to novels, let's start with the first interruption for Helen and Rose in their dance. So the doorbell rings, a novel arrives, and it is only then in the book that Helen begins to have thoughts that are abstracted from what she's doing in the moment with Rose. The novel provides her, I guess, with a sort of other room within herself, so to speak, one that she can enter and leave uh, and has to leave, but another place for her mind to go also. And I don't think it's a coincidence that this novel, Tom Jones, that arrives is 900 pages long. It, It isn't as long a commitment as raising a baby, but both are sustained commitments and it suggests a commitment. This is a book that you're 
that requires some dedication. And I don't think it's a coincidence that the novel itself has the sudden abrupt arrival of a baby as its central plot. So I was hoping you could introduce us more to the, to the novel you've chosen to have be what Helen wants to read and what interrupts and interjects between her and Rose. And maybe also talk to us a little bit about the different way the baby exists within Fielding's novel. A, a different, I think, even comic way it exists in comparison to the way the baby exists in yours. I think it's interesting maybe to start with this question of the novel that Helen wants to read. I felt like there's a maybe a distinction but to be to be made between, you know, from Helen's Helen's rationale for, for choosing Tom Jones is is somewhat random in the sense that it's uh, it is on the basis of length and entertainment and the feeling, at least my feeling, my thinking one think for her is something to do, you no, know, something somewhat canonical and kind of well pre-valued, let's say. But she's not, um, she doesn't have a sort of professional relationship to reading. She's not a writer. She has a job in an office. It's more that the novel wants her to read this. You know, the narrating consciousness wants her to read this in order to be able to activate these connections between her experience, her lived day, and the yeah, and what happens in the novel in Tom Jones, where a baby is found, is found in a bed, indeed, and and taken on. Um, a commitment is made. What really interested me about that in Tom Jones is that it's on the basis of a finding, a basis of kind of contingency and discovery, not on the basis of something like biology. And here we have also an example of like taking on the fate of a baby and developing, working at and arriving at something like love, um, not something like love, but, but love, and through a, a father, you know, uh, Mr. Allworthy is is, uh, is in mid-age at this point, and he takes on baby Tom, but in a way that's very much um, kind of outsourced. Um, you know, there's also, there's a, he immediately summons a maid who um, who takes the small, the small kind of foundling child away and allows Mr. Or worthy to have a good night's sleep. And so you have this sense of this distributed kind of structure of care that's put in place for Tom in Tom Jones, which is um which is not about a kind of essential relationship between between mother and child, certainly not a kind of essential biological relationship between mother and child. Although that that family relation and that sense of a restoration of the social order does take place as um as the as Fielding's novel unfolds and concludes on a note of restoration of social order, I guess, um, and sort of biological affinity or connection. But what interested me in the sense that this is a spoiler, a spoiler, but in the sense that it turns out that Mr. Allworthy and Tom are indeed related. But the novel spends like 800 pages of them not being related and yet loving each other nonetheless. And um, that was really interesting to me as a sort of model um, to set alongside Helen and Rose, where you know Helen has birthed Rose, um, and to, to sort of speak of these different these different versions, the different modes in which this this form of relation, this form of commitment, can appear. Yeah, and so that was one of the reasons. I also, you know, comedy was really important to me, and I hope you know Helen is tired, and she's kind of quite tired most of the day because she's had a rough a rough night. But there is a kind of comedy that I was interested in drawing out. Um, even at the level, it's beautiful that you, you, you know you're 
speaking of dance, um, there's something very choreographic that I was interested in. These sort of these holding positions that work for a while and then need to be collapsed and refound, and these sort of un somewhat unlikely positions that the two characters find them in, in relation themselves in in relation to each other, which is all you know, sort of exhausting and difficult, but also um, kind of funny. And there are times when and Helen herself finds it unlikely and funny, and and fielding and what's happening in Tom Jones and the you know and the way the baby is found and um and the maid who is called is like well you know we could just put him you know back outside in the rain it, you know it's like he'll probably be fine and you know there's this sort of like you know a kind of humor to there's a a kind of levity to uh, this is serious like this is this idea of this being serious life work this is this is about this is, you know the sort of continuation of a life and Helen is very conscious of the stakes, I think, in that, you know, in that sort of moment to moment conscious, mm. conscious of the stakes in the way that, that you are when sort of looking, when you're solely responsible for someone so vulnerable. But at the same time, like this kind of flip into being able to just not stay in that key, in that key either of exhaustion or, or like sort of seriousness or sort of overwhelming seriousness of what's going on um, into uh, the key of levity and humor and almost like a kind of slapstick, which... Um, I feel like fielding giving me access to. Yeah, I love that juxtaposition between their two realities. It's really funny sometimes. One other thing that's interesting to me about how is how much the novels of the early modern era before the Industrial Revolution and its effects, how postmodern they seem. These early modern era novels are often very conscious of themselves and are also often hybrid. Tom Jones's both fiction and essay is just one example, or just the self-awareness and meta-nature of Don Quixote, obviously Tristram Shandy. The novel form historically seems like it's genre-crossing and wildly experimental. In many ways, it feels much more so than the most representative novels of the last 200 years. And Le Guin herself has an interesting quote where she said, until the 18th century in Europe, imaginative fiction was fiction. Realism in fiction is a recent literary invention, not much older than the steam engine and probably related to it, suggesting that all great works from the Odyssey to Beowulf, Hamlet to Don Quixote were fantastical works in some fashion, and also linking the rise of industrialization and extractive capitalism to not only a change of our relationship with nature, and I'll just add as an aside, I, I talked to Naomi Klein about the steam engine where she characterizes it very much like you did when you talked about the mother saying, I decide when we go to sleep, that the steam engine allowed us to, to say that to nature, essentially, that we had a more beholden reciprocal relationship to nature where we had to build something near a small waterfall to get power from water versus the steam engine where you could just say, I'm going to decide when, how much, and where, and for how long. But it also marks a change in how we viewed the purpose of storytelling according to Le Guin, which became more human-centric, where the novel more and more became the vehicle for a single human consciousness. And I would add to that a single adult human consciousness. Um, and you have a meditation in the book on the novel form in relation to history, capitalism, and the individual. And I'd love that to be our second reading, partially because of 
that, but also because it's an entirely different mode of writing than what we've already heard. So if, if you're open to it, I'd love to hear the chapter called Preparation and Transitions. Okay, I'll have a go. Preparations, Transitions. In her novel, the stories came in their own sequence, pushing forwards, sometimes turning back. It, the novel containing them, the title of which was Tom Jones, continued. The foundling baby goes on with growing up, becoming child, becoming youth, in the accelerated way infants tend to in novels. This was another of Ian Forster's observations, something he said in a lecture on the kinds of made-up people and in what phases of their lives a novel is most likely to pay attention to, which is to say, adults. He noted, when a baby appears in a novel, it usually has the air of being posted. It is delivered off. One of the elder characters goes and picks it up and shows it to the reader, after which it is usually laid in cold storage until it can talk or otherwise assist in the action. What is implied by this criterion of talking or otherwise assisting in the events of the novel? Who and what it excludes from the spheres of meaningful and consequential, which is to say political, action. The value that the novel, at least in its English language presentation, typically places on the fantasy of the self-determining individual. It's foregrounding, or it's been argued, it's invention of the particular kind of subject whose interest and worth is directly linked to their capacity to speak, act and decide for themselves. In other words, independently. This, for Ian Watt, was the whole story, a set of ideas inextricable from the emergence and the rise of the novel in its most popular, recognisable and dominant form. The novel, defined in Watt's terms by its serious concern with the daily lives of ordinary people, ordinary, credible people and their daily lives. For Fielding and his contemporaries, this, Watt argues, was a new concern. It provided the subject matter of a whole new province of writing, but it's a provision dependent on two important general conditions. First, what wrote, a society must value every individual highly enough to consider him the proper subject of its serious literature. Second, I quote, there must be enough variety of belief and action among ordinary people for a detailed account of them to be of interest to other ordinary people, the readers of novels. Both depend on a society characterized by that vast complex of interdependent factors denoted by the term individualism. Individualism, even the word, what notes, is relatively recent, dating only from the middle of the 19th century. Individualism, meaning not egocentrism, nor originality of opinion or way of life, traits long identifiable in certain individuals in all ages across all societies but something else. It posits a whole society mainly governed by the idea of every individual's intrinsic independence from other individuals, as well as from past modes of thought and action denoted by the word tradition. For such a society to exist, a special type of economic and political organization is required, along with its own matching ideology. Specifically, one which allows its members a very wide range of choices in their actions and on an ideology primarily based, not on the tradition of the past, but on the autonomy of the individual, which is to say, capitalism and its attendant promise. 
that whatever mesh of conditions a person may have been born into, to whatever extent they were formed, acted upon, their lives supported and limited by other people, by circumstance, by tradition, they can separate themselves, distinguish themselves. They can act autonomously on their own account. They can, and really they should. After all, they have, everyone does, according to this worldview, a very wide range of choices in their actions. In this story of the British English language novel, people are interesting to imagine and to closely describe if and when they are capable of standing upright on their own two feet, if and when they're capable of speaking, thinking and deciding for themselves, rather than being spoken for, sharing thoughts, being decided for, or speaking or acting on someone else's behalf, capable of leaving the home, for example, rather than staying, and in this way of progressing, changing, breaking with past modes of action and thought rather than perpetuating them. In other words, in Judith Butler's words, the point at which they release themselves from the human conditions of beholdenness and dependence. But listening to Kate Briggs read from the long form. So we have a question for you from Rebecca Hussey, who is a judge of this year's National Book Critics Circle Translation Prize. She's also the co-host of a great literary podcast, One Bright Book, a podcast where you and your work have come up with some frequency. So here is Rebecca with a question for you. Hi, David. Hi, Kate. I'm Rebecca Hussey. And Kate, I'm so thrilled I get the chance to say words that you will hear, and then I get to hear your response to them. It's just marvelous. Thank you, David, for this opportunity. Kate, both of your books and everything I've heard you say in interviews and such, it's all shaped my thinking and been really important to me. I love the way your mind works, especially your generosity and warmth. So thank you for sharing your work with the world. So I love that Tom Jones is an integral part of the long form. Uh, That's just delightful. Your book made me think about some writing I did on fielding back when I was in school. And I wanted to just briefly describe a moment from my past in order to lead up to my actual question. I wrote an essay on Henry Fielding in school and argued that his novels playfully point out an author's vulnerability and lack of power over the reader that he's saying a novelist is vulnerable to responses such as misreadings, boredom, antagonism, carelessness, uncharitable interpretations, etc. So my own professor liked this argument, um, but my memory is of overhearing another professor describing Fielding's narrators as entirely different, as all-powerful, as godlike, no vulnerability, with absolute confidence and authority. Uh, So this understanding of the narrator is of one who presides over the novel like a god, directs and controls everything, and assumes the reader will happily follow along. So it's kind of been an open question in my mind ever since uh, who was right. And I am not asking you to tell me who was right, but I'm wondering if you would talk about two things, maybe three. The first was, what was meaningful to you about Fielding's narrator in Tom Jones? So how do you understand Fielding's narrator's relationship to the reader? And then two, um, I'm wondering whether your narrator in the long form, thinking of the essay sections especially, whether your narrator is a response to Fielding's narrator in some way or not. They're very different. Um, but did you think of your narrator as a rewriting of Fielding's in some way? Or was there no relationship at all? 
And then the last piece is, um, how do you think about your own narrator's relationship to the reader? Thank you. Wow, what an incredible set of questions. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for those beautiful words about the work and also clearly your just in, your engagement with the long form most recently. Maybe I could start by saying something, picking up on something that David said a bit earlier about self-consciousness and Fielding's narrator is intensely self-conscious in the sense there is this kind of regular break from the fictional world that's being proposed. You know, the novel clearly wants us to invest in and care about. And as a reader, I do, you know, I did and I do. Um, but a kind of regular willingness to kind of break with that, um, interrupt that world building, as it were, and, and to think about what is happening, what is he doing, you know, what is, what is this proposition, what is this pact? And self-consciousness is something that's, um, that's a strong activity, thread, uh, running through the long form. And one of the reasons why I was drawn to thinking about self-consciousness or writing a novel, a first novel, my first novel, with this degree of self-consciousness and sort of meta-reflection, doing something and then thinking about what, what was happening, what was being proposed, had to do with the ex experience I was describing from Helen's point of view, uh, in the sense, I think, kind of mothering, caring for a newborn, certainly for the first time, but also maybe for the second or third time, is, um, is an intensely self-conscious experience. I think it is about so much about here I am doing this, bathing my child in a washing up bowl, which is what Helen does at some point, um, but also thinking, am I, is this really me doing this? Is this the right way to be doing this? Am I being, who is watching me doing this? Am I being appraised for how well or otherwise I'm doing this? So something about the self-consciousness, that sort of meta thinking kind of like spoke to a kind of anxiousness and um, which seemed to me to be sort of characteristic of the experience of the sort of life dynamic, the, um, the sort of partnership that I was interested in describing. So in that sense, I did feel a kind of strong resonance with Fielding. And I was just, I was really interested that this sort of self-conscious novel from the mid 18th century should, you know, as we said earlier, should also feature a baby and should also have some kind of reckoning with an inquiry into what it is to, to care for a baby and take that, take that vulnerability on and stay with it in some way. I have a question for you that might sort of extend Rebecca's question about the professorial debate. Let me see if um, this if this prompts anything for you. So thinking about voice and narration and audience, I really love the meditation you have in the book on point of view, where the book asks, is limited first person the only genuine lifelike point of view given that nobody knows what it is to be like anybody else. But ultimately you settle on a position that isn't all-knowing, but also isn't fully inside a character. Which again makes me think a little bit of Le Guin, who doesn't refer to the omniscient point of view as omniscience, but as the authorial point of view, which at least for me acknowledges a limitation that the word omniscience doesn't. But I absolutely love how you describe this intermediary space between a godlike narration and a character delimited narration. You describe it as gapped and roving, and that a gapped and roving point of view is one of limited knowledge, 
but limited knowledge that is fully expressed. So maybe you could talk into how or why we arrive at a meditation like this in the long form and why this interstitial point of view is compelling for you, which might be that neither one of these professors was, was right or both of them yeah. were, or both of them were right. Absolutely. Thank you very wonderfully sort of giving me a way of sort of making a bridge between those two, those two points of view. Indeed, I, I would re- reject this. And in fact, the novel in the long form, as Rebecca knows, does sort of quite explicitly reject this idea of the godlike of sort of, of total knowledge. And yet is interested in knowing, and this comes from also thinking with um, Ian Forster and some of the things he says in aspects of the novel, but that doesn't mean that knowledge is necessarily sort of wholly limited and constrained either. I think, you know, Forster has this wonderful line that we're stupider at some times than we are at others. You know, like sometimes we're quite stupid about each other. We know really very little. And sometimes we're sensitive and in touch and we really get a read on each other. And that read is, um, is, is, is accurate. And I, I was very interested in this, this sort of pulse or rhythm between these, t- these moments where the characters, Helen and Rose, are, do feel like synced. It is a rhythmic question as much as a kind of visual or perceptive or um, imaginative question. It's imaginative and rhythmic at the same time, I think, where they feel um, yeah, wholly able to anticipate each other and exist in a space or a moment of, of understanding, true understanding. And to feel like that is true. I mean, I do feel like that is, it's possible to kind of affirm that, that that happens in life. And then to follow that with kind of total a re-encounter or sort of re-reckoning with total opacity, like, who, who are you? Who are you? Really? You know, I felt you. I felt what you were, we were feeling the same thing, this sort of cloud, this weather of feeling that we were both this weather system we were both occupying, suddenly uh, something, a screen has come down and I don't, I, I'm not with you anymore. That seems to speak to something, a kind of roving, the term that you picked, it, picked up on, a kind of roving capacity that the third person narration has. And it seemed to me sort of deeply exciting and interesting to explore that. Because the, you know, the narration too is that sometimes with the characters and attending to them and close to them and able to transcribe their privacy, their inner thinking, and at other times has left them, you know, has left them for minutes or hours um, and is doing something else and is talking about Ian Watt in this different register and sort of knowing all kinds of things. I mean, clearly that section I just read, it, it knows all kinds of things that Helen and Rose don't know and maybe are like wholly uninterested in, in a kind of literal sense of going and reading the rise of the novel or whatever, but never, it's like the novel can do that. It can, it can set these things in relation to each other and it can, it can move, but it can also produce these gaps and separations. I was really interested in the idea that the novel kind of knows what it knows, what it sets down. It knows what it puts on the page. Um, Whatever other forms of knowledge production, imaginative sort of thinking are happening, they're happening in collaboration with the reader. So I guess as a way of coming back to the question, what I was really drawn to in fielding is this intensely sort of social narrator, this sort of self-conscious, but really kind of, I feel it to my ear, at least the kind of welcoming presence, which is about saying something like, here we are, let's acknowledge that 
this is here. It's not so much I'm here. Like, it's not like I'm there, but that's what's interesting about writing a book, I think. It's like this composition that's been made is now here, and I'm part of it, but I'm also not the only participant in it, you know, because there is, there's Fielding, there's John Dewey, there's, you know, there's Winnicott, there are all these other players. Um, here is this composition. It's, it's, it's now being activated by, by you, the reader. And the two of you, composition and reader, and then in it together. And tonally, I feel like Fielding just sort of manages to sort of make a, a kind of space of, um, of hospitality, which I really respond to. And, and that feels quite different from everything that you will, you will discover here has been put here by me and everything that there is to know here, I already know. Maybe it's something more about the hospi- hospitality as a form of interactivity which is going to, to use um, the other term that Rebecca used, a, a, a form of vulnerability, a form of a kind of acknowledgement of um, limitation. And, and, uh, and also, you know, there's a personality at work. There's a character at work with sort of likings and, you know, dislikings and sort of stroppiness you know, um, and enthusiasm. Yeah, so, you know, I think it's, for me, it's fielding the sort of social, the social energy and then, thinking of a phrase that you used much earlier on about the novel as a public project and making a public space. There's, there's a reference, you know, within the key of kind of Englishness, uh, you know, um, there's a reference to the pub and this idea of, you know, the, the, the public ordinary, um, you know, sort of this idea of the, of the novel as a pub, as a kind of public house. The door stands open, you know, which leads to a sort of small reflection on like what, how welcoming is a pub really you know is it really welcoming to all comers like not you know not perhaps not in Helen's experience certainly but nevertheless it's like on principle um it is a public space where you could push open the door and you could come in buy food and your money is welcome here and I I really enjoyed thinking about the novel as as something of that order as, as you know relatively cheap it's like 12 pounds and how many dollars <laughs> 18 dollars <laughs> um but you could come in and you can really stay a while you could really park up and um and stay a while and also come back leave and come back and that seemed to me the sort of order of space that that fielding was producing and, and in order to do that he needed to sort of i think relinquish something like total control even though of course henry fielding you know and tom jones is a is an incredibly so an architectural project is incredibly plotted and constructed. But there are these parts which the project itself, with like, like, for example, The Man on the Hill, there's a kind of central story in the middle of Tom Jones, which is just sort of placed there. It's almost like the novel itself doesn't quite understand the work it's doing there. And maybe it doesn't quite want to know either. It's like a kind of, you know, there's a limit to its own understanding of itself. And certainly in the long form, at certain point gave myself permission to include passages and sections where I can't quite tell you how they're working in relation to some sort of like plotted economy of the of the narrative. Mm. They estranged me also, but it felt like if once now that this space has been opened that they could actually support the space could support these moments of um of strangeness. Well thinking about a novel as an Open, like an open door pub. Um, I wanted to think also about how the long form is open to this little art or the way this little art extends into the long form. 
I looked back at your book on translation for evidence of your novel's concerns within it, and there's there are plenty of examples. For one, you describe the endeavor of translating as having novelistic qualities when speaking about how translations ask for the reader to suspend their disbelief about what was quote-unquote really written, you say, in this sense, from the outset, there is something of the speculative, and I would say of the novelistic, about the translator's project, whatever the genre of writing she is writing in. Or in describing Barth's preferences among novels, when you say he prefers novels of recollection, but because he has a terrible memory, he will have to write a novel for the present, made from what is happening right now in front of our eyes. That feels like a great description of one element of your own book, the dramatization of what happens between Helen and Rose. But even more so, we find comparisons of translation to mothering. You talk about Thomas Mann's translator, translating in the intervals of rocking the cradle that Bart used images of feminized labor as a metaphor for novel making, the dressmaker and the stoppeuse, the stopping of a hole in a stocking, and how this activity is what writing is, that the actual setting down of writing is distinct from the fantasy of writing in that it is a kind of catch or halt or temporary immobilization in the run of culture or when contemplating the inherent inequality of the translator-writer relationship, that no matter how collaborative the relationship is, the fact remains that the translator's writing couldn't exist without the author's, that at the end of the day, the translator is responsible for the author, but the opposite isn't true. You provide as an example that if you prepare food for your son to eat, and the slice of pear is too big for him to swallow, that would be the mother's fault, not the son's. And similarly, you quote Maggie Nelson's address to her readers, saying, You, reader, are here today because at one point, someone policed what went into your mouth. And then echoing Winnicott by saying, You don't owe them gratitude, but only the intellectual consideration of your past absolute dependence. You go on to use this mother-child framework for how we should regard translators, that the translator considered every single part to create the whole and each of the risks of every translation decision in order to do so. So in the spirit of me reaching back to find mothering and domestic labor and babies as ways to frame questions of translation in this little art, I wonder if you could pull this little art forward into the long form and talk about any translational elements or translation questions or other ways your long-held concerns about translation as a translator manifest in this novel about babies. It's interesting. It took me some time to um, come to terms with the continuity uh, which may sound, sound ridiculous now, given that the long form is called the long form. And as you say, that's a direct quotation from the preparation of the novel. Um, <laughs> but uh, this continuity between the two projects, 
and in fact the first line as you heard earlier of, of the long form is um the beginning of each new project was always a continuation uh, i sort of wrote that relatively late in the process of sort of affirming that to myself as a as a starting point as a starting point which is already sort of hollowed out by having all of these kind of prior beginnings and i think that's there that that i would sort of situate the long form in relation to a translation well in the many ways that you've already sort of unfolded around trying to reckon with responsibility and trying to sort of think through a condition of of dependence not as a kind of exception that lasts for a while and that is you know grown out of and shared and then life becomes possible and interesting and novels can you know can become a character um, but more as a as a kind of generalized condition which is more or less um, acute but nevertheless what it's like you know what it's always like throughout our lives so and to sort of begin there and to write out from there I guess that thinking to myself like what would it be to sort of write out from that recognition and that affirmation of dependency which is also derivation and that's the sort of way that the long form speaks back to this little art it's like wanting to not say something like oh translation is actually as original as original work <laughs> you know to say no you know actually maybe we'll start with um derivate you know the fact that it's derivative and accept that as a condition of its being and work and think out from there and think with that and and likewise this characterization of of the you know the translator's work is kind of reproductive rather than productive and a kind of feminized sort of service rather than a, a creative autonomous act of newness to, to sort of say rather you know rather than saying no, i reject that to think no i i what would happen if I fully, fully embraced that, if I fully took that seriously as a condition and sort of stayed with that and affirmed it? So that's one of the reasons why the translator is a she all the way through the, through the book. I gave myself permission. It seemed interesting to me to, to use scenes from sort of live childcare that was sort of happening contemporaneously with the writing of the translations as, as sort of instructional or sort of illumin, scenes of illumination in relation to taking on the responsibility for someone else when when this responsibility is not directly symmetrical it's 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 asymmetrical and that again is it's not something that the book argues against it's something that the book proposes to sort of think more deeply into mm -hmm. um you know we talked about tom jones but there's something about this sort of claim to newness you know in henry fielding saying i am here right now <laughs> inaugurating a whole new province of writing he's not calling it the novel you know yet he's calling it a history um it's you know later on in the century that critics might look back and say this was a moment in no of novel invention here i am inventing inaugurating a whole new province of writing there are no precedents and then and then in, in the essays there's like oh but there are these precedents you know there are the class you know there's homer there's you know the, there, there are the poets there are so this this sort of dynamic between newness and a novelty and something that sort of sprung from sprung from nowhere, like the baby in the bed, you know. Uh, and then and then also this sort of reckoning with an acknowledgement of the fact that you know, of course that this is also derivative, this is also dependent on what's come before. So thinking about my own sort of structuring of the long form, it, it does repeat this dynamic between essay parts and fiction parts, not in the key of inauguration or 
originality, but in the key of, and in the, out of an interest of translation. What is it to, to translate that structure again now? What kind of conversations does that provoke around the ways in which we sort of seem to, um, to talk about kind of contemporary innovation um, as if this were the first time, as if this had never, you know, something like this had never been done before, when in fact it's actually embedded deep into the sort of very, the history of, of, um, of the novel in English. So that, yeah, that would be a sort of another way of thinking about sort of action of the long form as a, as a, as a sort of reactivation, an interested in reactivation of existing structures. Well, we have another question for you, one that is about possibly my favorite scene in the book and probably the only scene I think that you could consider fantastical in nature. Um, this is a question from the author of Aftermath, which was a New Yorker Best Book of the Year in 2022 and co-chair of English Pen's translation advisory group, Preeti Taneja. Hello, Kate. It's Preeti Taneja here. There is a chapter of the long form called Moving On, in which Helen, who has forgotten her umbrella, is imagined interrupting E.M. Forster giving a lecture on the novel. Questions of time and of intertextuality as feminist practice are nested here. Helen is your contemporary character, but here she is time-travelling. Her name is lifted from Gertrude Stein's character Helen Strong in a novel of Thank You, but here she first becomes Forster's Helen Schlegel from Howard's End, forgetting umbrellas, disrupting the social order with her baby, Rose, who she loudly insists smashes time. Forster goes on to discuss Gertrude Stein in his lecture to your Helen, and then you, the novelist, intervene to stop him talking. You move the discourse back to Stein and quote from a novel of thank you, so the modernist writer speaks directly to us now. It's such an intricate, quietly powerful intertextuality that you achieve, and I wonder if your project isn't to try to emancipate us from patriarchal time and its literary canon. As one writer to another, I'm in awe and asking also, as the novel is trapped in the process of writing, how much time does it take you to make a passage work like that so fluently? You know, Preeti is incredible. Well, I didn't know that her voice would intervene here, but this is not the first time that she she sees things or she's sort of shown me things about the book that I didn't know were there. She's an extraordinary reader as well as clearly writer. That's an amazing, amazing, again, amazing set of questions. You know, it's, that scene, it's interesting. Just to sort of take the end, the sort of last part of the question first. I think I'd got, I'd reached the point, the long form did take some time. You know, it took, <laughs> it took it sort of five years in total with, with COVID and homeschooling and that, all of that happening in the middle. But I think it also needed to take this amount of time. I don't know how much that slowed it down really, really. But that scene, I think it actually came to sort of in speculative what if Helen were walking in to get out of the rain, indeed walking into this. The, the novel has been quoting Forster for some time. Forster is one of the, one of the characters, one of the presences in the book. Um, what if she were to shelter from the rain, entering into this space in Cambridge to which women were not allowed access in, in the 1920s? That, I think came out of this impulse or was written really quite fast in a sort of moment of um, since this is fictional, let it be fictional. <laughs> it's really like what can, because part of what the long form is doing is also connecting to your question about translation. 
it's also thinking about it's also a novel that's preparing itself it's sort of working towards it has a kind of prepare in my mind at least a kind of a preparatory quality and it's really thinking out almost in the key of if there were to be a novel what what were the ele- what are the elements that are required what would this involve what what, what would need to be thought about um and there's another section which sort of riffs on Tom Jones's containing image, again through Ursula Le Guin also. But you know what would be in here? Well, there would be time and space, and there would be forces, historical forces, and weather systems, and there would also be love. You know, <laughs> but there would be love in the you know, and it's a some I hope a somewhat kind of comical, but but also quite serious sort of unpacking of of what might have to be dealt with if a novel is going to emerge. And fiction, I mean, you know, and a kind of like, you know, a sort of interest in fictionalizing. And I felt like at that point in the book, I felt almost that sense of like, if you've stayed with it, if you're here long enough, if you're still here, then perhaps what can be permitted, perhaps the the ground is steady enough. If you've withstood this number of interruptions as well, like the ways in which the the novel is, is sort of, narrating what's happening with Helen and Rose and then moving away from them and then returning to them and how where else where else can we go and how far can this pact be stretched and how far can this what what can this companionship withstand to think again about sociability and form of sociality it's like if there has been a a kind of trust established a kind of willingness to go with it Again, like like with translation, then you know, go along with it. How can I, how can I work with that? Where can I, where can I take that? Well, I wanted to spend some time with Preeti's reference of feminist intertextuality, which I relate to both Christina Rivera Garza's notion of the disappropriation of materials to make our debt to others visible, but also to archive building and the sustaining of an archive. Preeti pointed out how Helen's name refers to multiple Helens, and likewise, you have a meditation on the multiple sources for Rose, being named Rose. And your Bart's epigraph, every word of it, are actually your words, in a way, because it's an epigraph by you, in the sense that you're the translator of his words and have chosen all of these words. But all of it feels like it points to how We've inherited every word, not just names, not just Helen Rose and the words you've chosen to translate Bart for the epigraph, but any word. And there's the mystery that we are indebted for every word, and yet somehow our writing still feels like a signature or a fingerprint. I know when I'm reading a book by you, by Kate Briggs, and yet your book opens, as you've said, with a line, the beginning of each new project was always a continuation which in contrast to Fielding, um, to give the full quote, I am in reality the founder of a new province of writing, so I am at liberty to make what laws I please therein. These two responses feel gendered to me in their sensibilities. Each beginning is a continuation, and I have created something entirely new. And they make me think of the ways you engage with the diminishment of translators and their importance in this little art, and also the diminishment of mothering and maintenance labor and of baby humans, but also more generally of of women. This little art is the phrase Thomas Mann's translator, Lowe Porter, called her craft, perhaps 
diminishing it or feeling it on the margins. She also calls herself a lady translator, a phrase that you embrace and adopt. You talk in the Fitzcarraldo podcast about how, as a young pregnant translator yourself, you were discouraged from translating and also from having kids, even though you had one on the way. And there's a notable absence of men in the long form, other than the men who deliver things or the men in the novel she is reading or the figures like Forrester who are pseudo characters essentially in a way. The father of Rose is not really substantially in the book, nor a narrative for why. And all of this makes me think about the ways within the book, you and by extension, Helen, make these diminished so-called little and belittled things, things of great importance. And additional to this, Jennifer Hodgson adds that not only does this book dramatize being with a baby, but it also dramatizes the making of theory I don't think the book is theoretical. I agree with Jennifer that instead of being theoretical, it dramatizes theory coming into being in a way that feels inseparable from everything else. For instance, when Helen wonders if the word motherhood was the name or the best name for what she was doing, in speaking of the word motherhood, she says of the word it made it sound like a stability as well as a kind of enclosure when she experienced it as a facing outward, facing and being faced with this actual other body equally present whose questions ran through her and whose ideas sometimes she felt. It made it sound like something one note, one tone, continuous and almost identical with itself while she experienced it as a countering a revision, a compensation, a rhyming, a dispute, a pulling outward. In quote-unquote motherhood, there should, by definition, be more than one live creature involved. But in the usage of this name, she wasn't sure if she could hear it, interchange, exchange, the energy of a relation. You can feel, I think, in the dramatization of the theory the philosophical import of the activity she is doing here in the book, Mothering. And it feels like this somehow is related to feminist intertextuality. It it makes me think of Rosemary Waldrop quoting her translation of her lifelong friend, Edmond Chavez. There is no place, not the reflection of another. It is the reflected place we must discover, the place within the place, I write at the mercy of this place. But I wondered in your words, what what does Preeti's conjuring of feminist intertextuality make you think of or mean for you? I would want to expand the conception of textuality, which I think Preeti would thoroughly endorse, in the sense that this, you know, this sort of engendering of ideas or this sort of chance of, of new thoughts emerging. Or, or old thoughts rephrased, let's say, you know, perhaps very familiar thoughts, but resituated or pushed through different bodies and different experiences. The chance of that happening, it can happen in reading. It can happen sort of discursively and it can happen through a setting of, of sort of textual bodies in relation to each other. 
and the long form does that. You know, we've talked a lot about, you know, the books that are in the, the books that are in the book, you know, the narrating consciousness does that. I hope what the novel does is that there are these strong, strong chances of ideas coming in, <laughs> um, uh, questions being posed and insisted upon that come through doing and being, being in the world, being in the park, being with other people. I'm not in any way invested in a kind of separation of scenes. But here is where, here is where um, books relate to one another, you know, and kind of speak through, through some kind of mechanism of citation in a kind of um, space of, of thinking. And here is something else. Here is, here is life, or here is life represented, or here is life fictionalized, but more about a form of circulation um, between those spheres. And, and that, this idea of like there not being no more separate spheres is a kind of, you know, a, a feminist position, I think. And not to say that they're the same, you know, not to say that the interior of a, of a flat with a playmat and a, and a mobile and, and these sort of different elements of, uh, you know, the sort of furnishings of childcare are exactly the same as something like a lecture hall or a quiet space of reading, a kind of room of one's own, you know, of, of, of concentration. They're not the same. They're fundamentally different in many, many ways, but they do all hold a chance of emergence you know they held the chance of something like theory coming into being they certainly are sort of exist as spaces for the doing of philosophy the doing of politics the doing of aesthetics you know that they're coexistent they're kind of porous and i think that's what critiques for you know feminist intertextuality i think i would sort of think that or phrase that as a as a commitment to the porosity between inside and outside and between a, a book you know, the knowledge that might be held in a book or in a work of, you know, high theory, let's say, um, and the sort of standing at the sink, looking out the window as a, you know, as a baby sort of bops its head against your neck. Um, and there's something about wanting to make the space of the novel, the long form, sort of speak to this. Um, is it the space, it's thinking a lot about things coming in and things going out of the flat, which is the sort of, sort of centralised space in the book, but also in the book itself. So things come in through the letterbox and also the weather, the light comes in through the window and electricity comes in through the plugs. <laughs> the internet also comes in, you know, yes. the internet, the internet's also there, like, you know, collapsing this difference between inside and outside. And this is, uh, this is the kind, this is the order of thinking that's happening. It's actually, it is intensely relational and um, without, Without sort of flattening out differences, it's interested in 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 thinking the way in about the ways in which ideas and questions and phrases and names travel through their repetition and their resituation, their recontextualization. So, what happens to something like um, novel theory? Let's say you know <laughs> um, novel studies when it's resituated in the space of of childcare. Something happens in the doing of that, I think. Well, thinking about feminist intertextuality and thinking about this question of inside and outside, thinking of outside, it's hard not to think about the writer and translator Benjamin Moser's review of this little art in the New York Times, uh, a takedown of the book that prompted multiple letters to the editor in defense of the book, including a group one that was signed by, among others, 
pass between the covers guests John Keane and Lydia Davis, both translators, Emily Wilson, the translator of the Odyssey and the Iliad, translator theory luminary Lawrence Venuti, Susan Bernofsky, the translator of most of Jenny Erpenbeck's books, and Katrina Dodson, notably the translator of Liz Spector's Complete Short Stories, which was in the Liz Spector series, whose series editor was Benjamin Moser. And they point out the reviews, quote, general tone of condescension and occasional misogynistic sniping, and give an elegant and nuanced defense of your book, and, and perhaps fittingly, at the end of Moser's review, there is a correction because the original bio for him says he translated Liz Spector's novel, The Chandelier, when in fact he co-translated it with Magdalena Edwards, who wasn't named. And Edwards herself has written an essay called Benjamin Moser and the Smallest Woman in the World, which is largely about her nightmare experience of working under him but also in passing about his own translation errors and mentions as well that during an hour-long conversation that Moser had about Liz Spector's The Complete Stories for the Library of Congress, he doesn't even mention the name of the translator of the book, Katrina Dodson, once until he receives the direct question about her in the Q&A. Part of why I bring this up is Ever since I interviewed Idra Novi, who translated Liz Spector's The Passion of G.H. under Moser, it's stuck in my craw that when you go to his website, the entire Liz Spector series that he was series editor of, many of which were translated by quote-unquote lady translators, that unless you know in advance that he didn't translate the vast majority of them, you would think he translated them all. He never acknowledges them anywhere. Some don't have the translators on the cover at all, but even the ones that do, you would have to know to zoom in on the cover to, to discover that they're there. But the main reason I bring this up is I wonder how exceptional or typical this moment was or is and how your books are received in the world. You write about the so-called little art of translation, the so-called little art of mothering. You were even going to call the long form at one point, a world in small doses. How common of a thing is it for your books to be made small or to have them belittled as not worthy of critical attention or that they aren't made with seriousness and rigor? That, I think for me, certainly in my life, that was an exceptional reviewing moment, You know, not something that I was anticipating or have experienced since at least at the level of its scale and its publicness, that review and the response to the review has become part of the publication history of, of this little art. And that's why I think that's part of why people are interested in talking about it. But it was exceptional in the sense, well, in a number of senses, one being that this was, you know, a first book and the Fitzgerald editions, a very small press at that time, was one of their first, one of their early books. I don't think at that time there were a team of, of three, and I don't think any of us, any of the four of us, anticipated the book appearing in the New York Times and then to appear in this manner. But I am exceptionally grateful, remain exceptionally grateful to that the support that the book received um, at that time through 
from those extraordinary practitioners and thinkers of translation who allowed through that act um, extended the life of the work in ways that were just extraordinary. I, you know, that doesn't happen. That doesn't happen very often. So um, often I think when a review has the kind of impulse or seems to express the intention to stop a book, it works, especially in a, a kind of platform as large as the New York Times. So that was and remains extraordinary to me. But I think I would want to, in thinking about it, that was five years ago, would want to kind of put the emphasis on what has changed in the last five years as a result of some of those, well, many of those practitioners, practitioners, <laughs> practitioners who, signed, who signed that letter, thinking of Katrina's recent translation, for example, um, thinking about the New York Times this summer doing a kind of special issue devoted to translators and to translation. I feel like the landscape for translators has significantly shifted, certainly since the time when I started working on this little art, which was kind of five to six years prior to the publication. I feel, I hope, I mean, this work is, is ongoing and is by no means achieved, but my sense is more translators are writing about their practice. There are more diverse voices in translation and beyond, you know, I'm talking about when my, my practice moves from French to English, there's a kind of seems to be much more visibility and interest and excitement around different languages, you know, translators working with different languages. My point being that, that I feel like there's a different energy around translation now than there has been, uh, or than there certainly was. And that feels really exciting to me and exciting to be, um, to be translating into. But your question was about this kind of marginal, this interest in the, in the little and the small. And something to say about the title of this little art is that it is in the key of a kind of provocation. It's both provocation and inquiry. I was very interested why Helen Lowe Porter, who devoted sort of 30 years of her, not sort of, devoted 30 years of her life to translating Thomas Mann, should describe her own practice as a, as a little art in her correspondence, in her private correspondence. What did, what did that mean? What did, so therefore, what did translation mean to her? How was she thinking about what she was doing? How was she giving value to what she was doing, to something which was clearly also very meaningful for her. So one of the impulses in this little art was to pause and take time. It seemed to me as an, a sort of non-reader of German, but reader of a lot of the criticism of her translations, it seemed to me quite a fast move or a quick move to be critical. That seemed like a, almost like an obvious move. There are mistakes in her translation. So let's be critical. Let's not have mistakes. <laughs> you know, mistakes are wrong and bad. And I'd read a lot of work about her work doing that. But it seemed to me more interesting to, to pause and take time to think about what she thought she was doing, um, to try and take her own words seriously, and then also the words of her daughters seriously, who wrote a letter of their own in protest to a review of their mother's work. So there, so there was part of a kind of methodology in this little art was to kind of take the terms that are being set around translation and kind of ponder them and wonder about them. And not go too fast. You know, one of the refrains in that book is about kind of slowing down. Let's not let's not speed up. And then, interestingly, when working on the long form, this question, you know, these marginal, so-called marginal experiences or smaller experiences or experiences that are sort of considered to be or characterised as sort of to one side of the main action, the real deal. You know, <laughs> that only that only really works. You know 
translation is only a marginal subject if you're monolingual or monocultural. You know, otherwise it's an active part of everyday life. It's what you're doing all the time. And I don't think either of us there's know very many people who are exist in a monolingual condition. I think that's a, that's a that's a rare thing rather than a common thing. That that's the, the exception rather than the norm. And yet that exception is centered. And that's what makes uh, pushes something like the translational activity to the margins. And I think something similar happens with being embedded or entangled in a situation of, of care and co-living that only looks marginal um, if, you're, if your centred subject is, you know, we spoke about independence, um, independent, autonomous, unencumbered. And again, I don't think that is the common condition. I think, uh, I think the most common, the most habitual condition, the way most of our lives look, is intensely relational and responsible in one way or another for other lives. But it was interesting how, when working on the long form, how when people would say to me, so, you know, hey, what's the not, you're working on a novel, or like, what's the novel about? And I'd say, well, you know, it's about a baby. <laughs> it's about a baby. And you, uh, or like a day with a baby or work, you know, newborn baby care. Or, you know, and I would see, I mean, this is often it would happen that you'd see people's eyes kind of glaze over slightly or, you know, entirely. And there was a sense, you know, you'd pick up a kind of vibe of like, have we not like had three or four books about this last year or something, you know, like, have we not done that? Is that not exhausted? And, yeah. and so it became very interesting to me as an exercise to think, okay, if I want to describe this book to other people and also to myself, like, what if I were to say, it's not a book about a baby, it is a book about a baby, but, but sort of put some other language around it and say something like, it's about um, a forms of durational co-living or, you know, yeah. intergenerational intergenerational durational co-living like and then you'd see uh, genuinely there would be the different ways I would if I sort of could invent other ways of describing it which were also true and I was also attached to and really believe in I do think it's a very interesting instance of intergenerational co-living or you know a scenes of reckoning with difference let's say then people I mean I'm generally speaking you know make it, I'm characterizing this for the sake of of talking with you about it but you would see a different quality of interest. And then that, that also then spoke to me as kind of part of the project of writing, whether in this little art or the long form, which I am like deeply invested in, was like, what happens? What happens when we redescribe the familiar or redescribe actions or activities or modes of being or forms of life which we think we've understood or we do understand and we think we've, we've said everything there is to say about them? Is that not part of the uh, kind of writer's project to find modes of redescription which actually open and reactivate and make these experiences sound relevant uh you know or not only sound relevant but point to their to their to their true relevance to what might typically look like it sort of lights outside of that sphere so that sort of Redescription. That's why the long form is called the long form, <laughs> um, where because it's not exactly clear what long form I'm talking about until you open the book, and then ah, we're in a scene of mothering and being a baby. Uh, but later on, we're in a scene of sort of novel thinking, and both are called the long form, and and that kind of holds both together. Mm. 
So as you've alluded to, the the landscape for translators has changed for the better since you started this little art. And your work is since that review when Fitzgeraldo was small and this was your debut, your work has achieved acclaim. You've won awards. You've you've done well. Um, and you've told me outside of the interview that you'd love for this little art not to forever be associated with the Moser review, but but I suspect your publisher, Fitzcarraldo's reasoning for pointing people on their website to the review and the translator community response, placing it before all the positive blurbs for the book is a similar reason I bring up the review as well. That in the big picture, it isn't the review that is remarkable, but the response on behalf of the book, that in a very high-profile way, people disrupted the norm the way Helen interrupts Forster's speech to an audience of men bursting in with her baby and her deeply thought out philosophical thoughts about babies in relation to novels, that it really isn't so much about Moser who represents, I think in this instance, longstanding and widespread biases that have made books like yours rarer or more marginalized but rather because both of your books engage with these longstanding and widespread biases, because both of your books suggest a possible otherwise, and because both your books suggest a multiplicity of ways to be in relation to both translation and writing. It feels like that review became a real-life, contemporary instance of things that you mainly engage with in a historical context in your books that this resonance between your engagement with critical response in your books and then this high-profile critical response in the world and the response to the response, I think it creates a sort of umbilical cord, not between this little art and the Moser Review, but between this little art and the response to the Moser Review. Like I think of when you won the Wyndham Campbell Prize and instead of giving a talk, you wanted to have a conversation with other translators. So you invited Johannes Jorensen, John Keane, and Sawako Nakayasu, the latter two who've been on the show as guests, to invite their thoughts and their modes of translation and writing, which in many ways couldn't be more different from each other or from yours. And then you called what you were doing together a different sort of writing and a different sort of publishing. So in a, in a way, it feels like there's an echoing in the the review and response and your own critical engagement within the books and the call and response you invite both within your books and the call and response you invite between your books and the reading public. Thank you for that. I think um, I think you're all, you've really put your finger on something that's really important to me, which is conversation. The conversation and it's actually my books, especially this little art is often described as conversational. And it's true, I'm very interested in conversation. In fact, what's difficult about that instance of the review, the sort of public um, grand platform review, is it doesn't really invite, generally speaking, it's not a mode, it's not a, a form that invites response. So the, as, you, as you pointed out, the fact that it did then have a, have a response puts it into the zone of the conversational in ways that are actually really interesting. And then generated conversation privately, you know, with Katrina Dotson, for example, who's now a friend as a result of kind of talking and exchanging and writing to each other. So that's 
extraordinary. And some of the work I was doing at Glasgow this past year, I was a practitioner in residence at Glasgow School of Art. And the whole thematic I proposed was around conversation as a practice, as potentially as a kind of art form in and of itself, but also as a as something that we do pedagogically, you know, as a way of it's it's the mode of teaching is through we you know we talk to each other about what we think we're doing when we're making art. And I was really interested in the forms that are available to us for such talking. And this I think is relevant to to reviewing as a practice. Like within the art school we have the the crit, the group crit, for example, or you have the studio visit, you know, these more one-on-one modes. And so just there was an invitation to think together with staff and, and students at GSA about these forms and about how effective they are, where what they where they come from, why we keep reproducing them. Is there occasion to rethink them? And with a small group of really wonderful recent graduates from the uh, MFA, we came up with a project called Rituals in Preparation for Talking About Someone Else's Artwork. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> um, which we're making, which, which will be part of a publication, um, which we're currently getting getting slowly towards print and the part of the thinking there was perhaps that you know perhaps we do need some rituals like what is it to sort of ready yourself to actually engage with someone else's work what kind of what values do we do bring to that space of of engagement of responding to a call you know if a book put into the world is a kind of call to reading to response you know how do you how do you sort of enter into a space of receptivity so these are things I'm thinking, been thinking through in a really sort of quite magic way in the context of Glasgow. But I do think there's something about call and response. And this also speaks to something I feel like you've really seen in the long form, the ways in which sort of setting, putting maybe sort of unlikely materials into conversation with each other in a way. I think that's what a book can do. It's like it's not often that you get Gertrude Stein speaking to Henry Fielding, maybe, although I think she did really like Henry Fielding. I did read that, you know, like, or like John Dewey talking to Penelope Leach, like who, you know, author of a baby care Bible, you know, or any of them talking to Reba, who's a character in the book. But, but here they are, here is a space where they can actually speak. And then what, and what is said is starting to have that quality of, of responsiveness, responsivity. What you don't want is for conversations to stop. And I think that's the thing that you don't want. Who would want conversations to be kind of closed down? And I feel like that's what happened with the the sort of the review and then the responses to the review is I think it did. Although, you know, it's the sort of a human (laughs) is in the middle of that. It's like not, you know, it's not ideal. It's not, you know, it's not certainly, you know, the moment of, of, of the review's publication, it's not what I would have wanted, but I recognize with hindsight, that it did generate uh, talk. Yeah. So that's intensely valuable. Um, yeah. One of the things I, I really love about the story of the translation community, not only rallying on behalf of the book, but around the importance of your provisional approach that allows for uncertainty and op- open-ended questions, is that I think archive building and feminist intertextuality isn't just vertical, isn't just as important as it is rescuing past writers from erasure on behalf of the future, but also horizontal building relations with peers, which this takedown review uh, ended up 
exceptionally producing this, this uh, or making visible this community that valued this little art. And in that spirit, it feels like we can't not mention Helen's best friend, Rebbe. Their story was the most painful part of the book, and in some ways the most beautiful part. I, th- I think you could say the story of their friendship is the story of the way existing forms can prevent connections from enduring. As roommates, prior to Helen getting pregnant, their lives together are kind of perfect, a harmonious symbiosis. But when Helen gets pregnant, it feels to me like inherited forms of living both prevent Rebbe from verbalizing her desire for Helen to stay and for them to do this together even though there is no example from which to do it together. And also that these same forms push Helen to believe that she should really, quote-unquote, progress from their shared space to some more recognizable form of independence and self-sufficiency. In your conversation with Renee Gladman, you say of your novel, one of the book's repeating questions comes from Gertrude Stein, a line lifted from her, a novel of thank you. Who can think about a novel? Her bold response in the next sentence is, I can. I know poems move. I know essays also move. Clearly, it's rare for them to stay in the same place, in the same key or register or mood. But for me, this is the novel's specificity. It's extraordinary stretched capacity for modulation. How a novel can bring you to the sense of something ending or falling apart, and then somehow regather, find new resources, carry on a new chapter. And of course, this falling apart and coming together is happening moment to moment between Helen and Rose throughout the book. But it's this female friendship falling apart and trying to find a new form that was particularly poignant to me as a reader. And I love that the form for the novel ultimately is the mobile that hovers over Rose in her crib, the only thing that the baby herself can sustain her focus on. Because the mobile also feels like it speaks to Helen and Reba's relationship. Throughout the book, we get images of different parts of it. And at various times, you describe it as near and juddery, gapped with negative space, edge and alive, or held in readiness, often itself in one shaky arrangement than another, or each shape offsets the other, not one of its parts is given more weight, or perhaps most importantly, a mobile is a continuation supported by contrast. In a way, a mobile seems like the opposite of story, and yet becomes the form of your story. So I felt like we should speak for a moment on the mobile, which feels similar in spirit to a gapped and roving point of view. I'm so grateful, well, everything, <laughs> but also for your your sense, your, your perception and your reception to, indeed, I think wanting a novel like a mobile, I wanted a novel like a mobile, I wanted a novel one phrase you used earlier is a sort of single consciousness. I'm a deeply sort of enthralled reader of single consciousness novels, but I wanted this to be at least a double consciousness novel. And as you say, there are other characters that the river 
um, it's actually it's it's a multiple consciousness novel. It has these these parts that are played, but also these these shapes, these characters, and in a way, the the mobile is made up of um, elemental shapes, a, a circle, you know, a square, dots, a triangle, which have you know, even as I say them out loud, they have qualities. They have mm-hmm. a particular kind of charge and character. And Reva has her own character and charge. She's one, you know, she's one element indeed in the mobile. And um, and she's she's circulating um, and set in relation to the other elements. And I really like the idea. I was really committed to the idea of, which perhaps speaks back also to Preeti's question of a kind of decentered or uncentered narrative where it's about this shifting relation of, of, of offsetting, contrasting, sometimes vibing with, speaking to, connecting, that's sort of ongoing, not sort of ongoing, like in wholly ongoing. But the rhythm of the, of the book is about, I think, this sort of like holding, holding of a position, sort of proposing some kind of choreographic position. Dance is a term that you've used a lot. And then indeed, like collapsing it, wobbling it, making it shaky and then and finding another and the idea that it it does it keeps moving also speaks i think to the inside outside question because what is it actually sensitive to it's sensitive to helen like twisting it like with some like violence to like get it going again and you know uh entertain rose again but it's also sensitive to breath and air and these other forces you know it's made from plastic and it's you know, it's hung from the table, which is made from plywood. It's like it's got its own materiality. It's um, it's responsive to to forces which are actually much larger than the characters that are kind of in the room with it at any time. It's in, and it's interesting. You know, I'm also really pleased that you brought in this friendship, which is another of the long forms in the book. You know, mm-hmm. this is another long form that it's the, the novel is trying to think about, and also about. You know, in relation to the question of, of, of critical reception, uh, you know, I feel also immensely grateful for the for the reception and the seriousness which, which my work, my work has been taken by you know some of the, the readers and writers that you've cited and brought into the conversation and winning a prize is a, like extraordinary affirmation and validation. But I think it is also interesting that sort of the kinds of of language that get uh, attached to my books, which are things like lovely. You know, mm-hmm. it's lovely. Um, whimsical is another one. And again, it, it, it's, it's not so much about a kind of whimsy, whimsy, maybe I reject. Not like lovely, I could think through and, you know, and hold to. If, if I'm serious about, we're serious about changing these conditions, then it's about, you know, how do we sort of claim the sort of force of these adjectives or the force of these modes of being, the sort of politics? What's the politics of loveliness? Is that not also not a, like an action in the world of creating conditions where perhaps people feel more likely to be to feel somewhat welcome than than kind of afraid that they're going to be hurt? I wanted to put the book to feel like the chances of being hurt were kind of sort of being actively minimised. I love that as far as possible. As far as possible, because of course, how can you minimise them entirely? You can't. Yeah. But yeah. Well, as a way to end. I thought we'd do a really short reading. When in conversation with Tracy K. Smith about translation, you said that in the best circumstances, translation is not a layering, but a setting alongside of something new. And in a way, the mobile is like that too. 
Nothing is subordinate to anything else. Everything is suspended alongside. And there's a wonderful moment shortly after Helen starts reading the novel that arrives where really for the first time in this day, Rose isn't on Helen or being mirrored back to by Helen. Helen is inside the book in another mental space, but she's sitting alongside or nearby Rose. And then Rose communicates to Helen um, side by side. And I was hoping we could hear this half page. It's the last half of the last page of a chapter called A Container Containing. From Rose in her rocky chair, there was reaching towards Helen, towards the room, her situation, which was Helen, who for Rose's purposes was the ambulance, her room. The reach said, I have known your inside sounds. I have been carried by your basic rhythms. I grew up in a space among your organs. I am not yet not you. The separation and difference of me is one you bring to bear with your reductive guest-at translations your efforts to fix and limit the open-endedness of myself, my boundary-collapsing sensations. Helen, feeling suddenly very hungry, looking up from her page to fathom what she sensed was a communication. She replied in thought, I have known you, sat with you or near you, your whole life, but there are times in a day when I'm here and you're just there. We're so close, you low in the room at my elbow, level with my thigh, yet I can look up and have no idea who you are. Thank you, Kate Briggs. It was a dream to speak with you today, and I I so loved your book. Thank you. It's been, um, it's a, yeah, I haven't words. I mean, we've said a lot of words, but it is um, an immense gift, David, what you've given me. Thank you. Thank you. We've been talking today to Kate Briggs about her latest book from Dorothy, The Long Form. You've been listening to Between the Covers, and I'm David Naiman, your host. Today's program was recorded at the volunteer-powered, non-commercial, listener-sponsored, full-strength, makeshift home office of me, David Naiman. If you enjoyed today's conversation, consider joining the Between the Covers community as a listener supporter. We have many new bundles of books from Dorothy, with books by everyone from Kate Briggs to Karen Balin to Leonora Carrington to Amina Kane. The bonus audio archive, which includes a ton of translator-centric material, readings and discussions by everyone from Lydia Davis to Rosemary Waldrop to Arthur Z. And every supporter can join our brainstorm of future guests. And every listener supporter receives the supplementary resources with each conversation of things I discovered while preparing for the conversation, things referenced during it, and places to explore once you're done listening. Additionally, there are a variety of other potential gifts and rewards, including the Ten House Early Readership subscription, getting 12 books over the course of a year, months before they're available to the general public. 
to a bundle of books selected by me and sent to you. You can find out more at patreon.com slash between the covers. Or if you prefer a one-time donation, you can do so by PayPal at tinhouse.com support. I'd like to thank the Tin House team, Elizabeth DeMeo and Elisa Ogie in the book division, Beth Steidel in the art department, Becky Kramer and Jay Nichelle in publicity, and Lance Cleland, the director of the summer and winter Tin House Writers Workshops. Finally, I'd like to thank past Between the Covers guest, poet, musician, composer, performer, and much more, Alicia Jo Rabins for making the intro and outro for the show. You can find out more about her work, her writing, her music, her film at aliciajo.com, A-L-I-C-I-A-J-O dot com. Thank you.